Amen. Thank you for praying. Um, our, our little ones have a special time ready for them right now. Miss Nikki is going to lead them out. So for anyone who, who qualifies or sees themselves as a little one, you can... <laughs> I don't see any adults getting up, so that's a good sign. Um, oh, maybe... <laughs> Have you ever been on the eve of some um, important event? Anticipation. Something's happening. Something's going to happen. Something significant. Um, Maybe preparing for the birth of a child. Uh, I remember, I remember uh, preparing for something uh, many years ago. I, I used to run a lot of road races, 5K, 10K, that type of thing. And uh, one year I decided that to really prove myself, I needed to run on a 10-miler team, run a 10-mile run a race. And so I competed with, um, ran with a team from my, my army installation where, I was, where we were living at the time. And I was on the Army 10-miler team. And we were going to run the Army 10-miler in Washington, D.C. that September. And I trained and I trained and I trained. And my body broke down. And about a month before the race, I had bursitis in my hip. Um, But I was told, you'll probably be okay. Just rest and it'll get better. And you're well-trained and you'll be fine. But I remember the anticipation of that race thinking, What's going to happen? You know, am I going to get out there and, and you know, get a couple of miles into it and my hip's going to start hurting again? I'm going to feel that same pain again. And um, uh, it, good, God was good in that instance and I was able to complete the race. But you know, there's an anxiety when, you, when you're anticipating something like that, uh, an important event. Um, or or maybe, uh, maybe you felt anxious in preparing for a personal uh, interaction with somebody. What I was going to say, a confrontation. Um, sometimes a confrontation can be a good thing, and sometimes it's not necessarily a negative thing that you're going to have this, you're going to confront somebody, but it can feel, it can fill you with anxiety. Um, maybe you've had a job interview, or you're preparing for a job interview, and you're a little anxious about this, or uh, maybe you're preparing to go talk to a teacher or a professor about your grades or about an assignment and you're anxious about this and you want, you, you want to get some answers, you want to get something worked out or, or maybe you're, you're uh, preparing to witness to somebody and you're wondering, what if I say the wrong thing or should I say anything at all or what if they think I'm preaching at them or, you know, and you get this anxiety leading up to that. I had a, 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 an instance a few years back where I was preparing for a promotion board, which is essentially the military's version of a job interview. And I'm preparing for this, and I'm thinking, okay, I know my stuff. I've, I've got the details worked out. I, I know what to say when they ask this question or that question or that question. And I got into that promotion board and sat down, and here were these four senior enlisted uh, men sitting in front of me, and they asked all the wrong questions. 
<laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, now what do I do? And it was, at a, it was in a moment like that where I'm, I'm shooting up little popcorn prayers. Uh, God help me. You know, in my mind, in my heart, I'm praying this while I'm looking at them and trying to, um, trying to do the right thing. But we get anxious about those things. If you've ever experienced anything like that, then you probably have an idea of what Nehemiah was going through in Nehemiah chapter 2. That he was going through, he was preparing for a confrontation, he was preparing for a, a moment where all of the training, all of the preparation was going to come to a head. And he was going to have to act on what God had called him to do. An anxious moment, maybe a fearful moment, maybe something that you felt as well. Where we have, we have been reading, um, where we're following the story in Nehemiah in a series that I've called Restored, Pursuing True Purpose. Restored, it's the story of Nehemiah, it's the story of the people of Israel, it's the story of how they restored the city of Jerusalem under Nehemiah's um, uh, leadership. God led him to that, called him to that. He led them to restore the city, restore the city walls. Last week we, we saw how God was great and awesome. And God was worthy to bring that request, uh, or worthy of Nehemiah to bring that request to him. Today we learned that God is good. That God is working things out according to His plans and His purposes to restore us to our true purpose in Him. And I want us to learn from Nehemiah and learn how he responded and how he reacted to the God of heaven and the good hand of his God. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 together. So if you have a Bible, you might have already turned there. Um, if you have a device, you can go to that on your devices. Or you can sit back and follow along on the screen. But I'll be referring back to this text during the message as well. So follow along as I read aloud. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. 
And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word. And I thank you for the, those who are gathered here today to hear it. Lord, I pray that you will speak to us. I pray that your heart will move us, will stir us. That, God, you will convict us of any areas of our life that, uh, where we have unbelief. Where, God, we're walking out of step with your good purposes for us, your design for us. Lord, I pray that um, today... And we will hear your word. We will be encouraged by it. We will be moved by it. And we will be transformed by it, Lord. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The, uh, the first uh, part of this scene is Nehemiah in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. And we're wondering, uh, if you're wondering, you're wondering what in the world is Nisan? I mean, what is this month, and why? What, is, what does he mean by 20th year and all of that? Um, if we roll, roll the clock back, if we, if we go back to last week, we'll, we'll see in chapter 1, verse 1, that it happened that in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when he was in Susa, the citadel, that, that, all the, that the whole story began. And we, 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 uh, we learned last year, week, I told you last week that Kislev is that kind of period between November and December. So it's, it's at the start of winter that the story actually happened. And now it's, it's the month of Nisan. And the month of Nisan is that period uh, between month and, or, excuse me, March and April. So it kind of overlaps those two months. So we're looking at a period of about four months later where all of a sudden we pick up the story again. Now what has Nehemiah been doing this whole time? That would be the question I'd be wondering. What's, what's been, what has Nehemiah been all about since the beginning of the story till this story, the, to where the story continues in chapter 2? He's been praying. He's been fasting. He's been weeping and mourning. I'm sure he's been doing more than that. He's been doing more than that, but he's certainly been doing that because we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, he said, as soon as I heard these words, when he heard about the, the walls of Jerusalem being broken down, he said, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Continued. Ongoing. Probably day after day. He may have fasted from something that entire period of time. Or he may have spent... Um, uh, two or three days a week fasting, dedicating an, an entire 24-hour period to uh, abstaining from food so that he could spend that time in prayer and in devotion to God. And we saw his prayer. We looked at that in detail last week. Now, four months later, here he is in the presence of the king, King Artaxerxes, in the 20th year. And I think from this we, can, we, can, we discover that the 20th year that that Nehemiah was talking about in chapter 1, verse 1, and the 20 year, 20th year of chapter 2, verse 1, or the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. And that's kind of how they counted things. They didn't really say, well, in 455, 
we will do such and such, or 445, it, we, they, didn't, they didn't think that way. They sort of measured time, the passing of time, by the, the reign of the king. And they said, it's now in the eighth year of the presidency. That's what they would have said. And for better or for worse, that's how they would have, that's how they would have marked time. So here he is, King Artaxerxes has been king for 20 years. Uh, we don't know exactly how long Nehemiah has been his cupbearer, but we saw that in the last verse of chapter 1, that he's the cupbearer. And now four months later, he's been praying. He's been, he's been waiting on God. He's been waiting on God to act. The one thing I, I want to uh, remind us from that that just that first verse and the first few, first few phrases of this passage is that the good hand, that is the good hand of God, gives us confidence to wait on Him. It gives us confidence to wait on Him. If we know that God is good, we can wait. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to work 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. We can stop. We can rest. We can wait. In, in those times where Nehemiah was wondering, how, are, how am I going to be used by God to restore Jerusalem? How am I going to be used by God for His purposes that, that He's calling me to? When I'm waiting here, when I'm doing nothing, I'm here in Susa, the citadel, and over there is Jerusalem where the real action is and where I really want to be. I really want to be doing that, but I'm here. The good hand gives us confidence to wait on God. That's pretty awesome. But we'll learn, uh, as we go a little further here, let's learn what he, or how he was waiting. We know he was praying. We know he was fasting. We, we know he was seeking the Lord in that way. But what else might he have been doing? I think we have some clues from the rest of the story. So, so Nehemiah went about doing his job. That's what we see at the rest of verse 1. When wine was before him, before the king, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. So now that shows us, um, gives us a, basically a short statement of what Nehemiah's job was. Being the cupbearer meant that he actually bore the cup and he gave it to the king. That was his job. Well, maybe not his only job. But his job was a very important job because not only did he bear the cup to him, but he tested the wine. Why would he do that? You know, how many times has... Do you have an answer to that? Oh, no, I saw your hand up. I thought he was going to answer. I thought, I thought he knew. He's like, I know why he did it. Why, do you, why would he do that? We, will, we don't do that. We don't um, open up a, a can of Coke and pour it out into a cup and and then take a little sip of it before we hand it to our guests. We don't do that. Um, but why would they do that? Well, because at the time, and the kings learned this from experience, that, that anybody who got close enough to you, um, who didn't like you, might want to put something in your drink. Not rohypnol or something like that, but something, um, a, a tonic that would soothe your heart and soul and help you rest with your fathers. Um, so they, you know, they, would, they, would, they were afraid of being poisoned. They knew that if they didn't have someone they trusted in that position to bear the cup, that 
they could be poisoned just like that. And it happened many, many times. And so they had devised this plan. They would find somebody that they, that they trusted with their life. The, the somebody who was so, so trustworthy that they could, they could trust him to give them their food and know that it was safe to partake of it. And that was Nehemiah. That was the kind of person Nehemiah was. So he took the wine and he gave it to the king. So we got to... Uh, you may wonder, okay, so uh, this happened, this, this, may have, this may have happened every time he had a meal. Nehemiah was there and he was always serving the king. Um, it could have been that um, the, the language of it uh, sort of sounds like when wine was before him, it sort of, the, sort of the, uh, kind of implies that maybe there was a party going on. There's probably a, a, a feast or a festival that they were celebrating in Persia at the time. Um, for them, Nisan um, was, was around the first of the year for the Persians. And so it might have been something that they were celebrating the new year um, and, and they were, you know, had, they had the wine out and they were passing it all around. And so maybe there was some, some kind of celebration going on. E even if it was just a private occasion, um, here's Nehemiah. Think about Nehemiah. We, we learned last week that, that there is a brokenness that we experience when we hear of the brokenness of other people. And that when feasting, or excuse me, fasting and praying before the God of heaven, weeping and mourning is probably not going to make you look all that happy maybe, all that um, pleasing, all that, uh, you know, maybe he didn't look like he was really locked and cocked here for the job before the king. The king notices it. He sees something in his countenance. He says, what's going on with you, Nehemiah? You've never been sad in my presence before. You've never come before me looking somber. You've never looked this gaunt. Have you been training for a marathon or something? Because you're so thin now. He's like, no, I've been fasting. Well, he didn't say that here, but that's, I, I assume that he might have said something like that. The king said, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? He knows he's not sick because he comes in and he's been coming in and out. But here we are at this time and, he's, and he identifies there's something going on inside of you. There's, there's, a, there's a brokenness going on there. There's a sadness of your heart. And I can see it on your face. And Nehemiah says at that point, I was very much afraid. Why do you think he was afraid? Could be that he's, he's at the king's party and he's got a somber face and everyone else is enjoying themselves and the king is saying, one of these workers is not like the other. And if you come before me with a face like that, when we're supposed to be having a party, um, you're fired. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Maybe he's like, oh no, I'm, I could get in trouble because I'm bringing my problems in here before the king. Um, and what's he going to do to me now? Or it could be, and I think this is more likely, could be that he knew what was coming next. He knew that this was his opening. This was his opportunity. Maybe it was that that the idea that, okay, there it is, it, the, pregnancy, the, the delivery is going to happen, um, the race is going to be run, you're, you're at the starting blocks, and you get that little flutter in your stomach where it's like, okay, here we go, we're, we're, we're ready to go, and, and you get this, this maybe a little bit of an afraid type of a feeling, or... It's the confrontation, it's the job interview, it's the, the, the conference with your teacher, or 
it's a witnessing opportunity or something like that. And he's very much afraid because how is this going to work out? What is the king going to say when I tell him what I have to tell him? And so he does. And he takes a gulp because he knows that the good hand of God gives us confidence to ask. The good hand of God gives us confidence to ask. So he asks. Well, he's about to ask. But he says, let the king live forever. And he, and he, and he takes his time with this. He doesn't come out and get too aggressive, but he says, here's why I'm sad. And I'll answer your question, here's why I'm sad. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So he kind of lays it out. Here's the situation. Here's what I'm sad about. Here's what I've been worried about. Here's what I've been fasting and praying about for four months. So the king said, what are you requesting? Here's a clue as to um, why this was probably a large gathering, probably a feast or a festival, some kind of a party. Because it was the tradition of the Persian kings to offer uh, gifts to people who came to their party. And they would come forward and, and they, would, they would tell them what they, they wanted or they would, they would you know, maybe make some kind of a, a gesture like, here's a situation that I'm dealing with. And the king would say something like, well, what is your request? And maybe we could imagine, we for fast forward to the days of Herod, when Herod said to the little slave, or to the, his, what, his wife's daughter, and said, what would you like? Up to half the kingdom and I will give it to you, Right? So it was something, he would offer some grand gesture, not expecting half the kingdom to be asked for, but what are you requesting? And he probably had people, there were probably people gathered around, probably winning. Oh, what's going, what's going to happen here? You know, um, Nehemiah is asking something from the king. Nehemiah says, so I pray to the God of heaven. Have you ever been in that situation? That's, that's what I was in, in, that, in the middle of that promotion board, going, they're asking me questions. I'm not sure I know how to answer. God, help me. <laughs> God of heaven, help me. I need help. Give me words. Give me wisdom. And so he says, this is the ask. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. That's what he wants to do. That is the longing in his heart. That is the thing that God has called him to. And he's been waiting on the good hand. He's been, he's been putting his confidence in God. Now he's come to a point where it's time to act. And, he's, and he makes the ask. He asks for help from somebody who can do something about it. I wonder what that would be like for us. Or how that would apply to us. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you knew you needed help with something? but you were afraid to ask? Or maybe you just decided, ah, I don't want to, I'm too pride, uh, prideful or too proud to ask? None of us would probably admit that, right? But maybe that's what it comes down to, that we feel like, well, I know there are people who could help me with this. I know there are people who could meet this need, but I'll do it myself. You know, we're, like the, we're like the little toddler who's saying, all by myself. I'm going to tie my shoes by myself. No, you're doing it wrong. Okay, you want to walk out the door jacked up? That's fine. <laughs> but 
But Nehemiah understood that he doesn't want to be jacked up. He doesn't want to, be, he doesn't want to do that. God's called him to something, and he knows that he can't do it on, him, on his own. He knows he needs help, and so he has confidence to ask for help. He knows that the good hand is behind all of this. That, that God had put him there for a purpose. That God had equipped him. That God had given him a position of influence. A position where he was trusted. And he knew that, that he was exactly where God wanted him to be. In all of the circumstances of his life. Even though there was so much brokenness around him. He had confidence in God. The good hand. To ask for help. Well, let's see how the king responded. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. Now, some people think that, that maybe there, this, this indicates, the mention of the queen indicates that maybe the scene has shifted. Maybe, maybe went from the private, the private the setting of where you know, the request was made and the king said, I will, I will grant your request, but let's talk about this a little more in detail. And that maybe what had happened was that now it had gone back to a, a more private engagement. The reason why they think that is because um, in the, Persian, the practice of the Persian kings at that time when they threw parties was very similar to what we read about in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 1. If you remember the story of Esther, it starts out with the king throwing a big old party. And the king is having a party and all of his nobles and all of his important men are there. And the queen is also having a party in a different place. And the queen has all of her ladies and all of her important women there. And so they had those public parties separately. But now we see that the king is with the queen. The queen is sitting beside him. So it probably signals that maybe that he'd gone to a, maybe a private room, a small a small setting. Maybe the king and the queen by themselves and a few trusted people. And of course, Nehemiah is still serving him. And the king asks, now he gets to the details. Let's, add, let's get some more details about this. Nehemiah, you want to go to Judah. You want to rebuild it. Let's talk about this. Because I have a pretty good memory. And I remember signing a letter a few years ago saying, do not build the, the city walls of Jerusalem. If you want to know where that's at, it's in Ezra chapter 4, the prequel to Nehemiah. Um, Ezra chapter 4, um, the, the, people of the, the people who were opposing Israel at the time when they were trying to rebuild the temple and then also the city, they had begun to rebuild the city at the time. And Artaxerxes had written a letter saying, yeah, I, I agree with you guys. It would be bad for that wall to be rebuilt because Judah may try to rebel against us. So now I think Artaxerxes wondering, tell me about this. You know, you're asking, you're asking me to do something, and I, and I want to grant you that request, especially since you had the courage to ask me in this public party. But now I want to know a little bit more about it. What's it, what's it going to take? How long are you going to go? I mean, you're my trusted right-hand man here. You're the one who gives me my wine. If you go from here, who's going to check my wine? Who's going to make sure I don't get poisoned? Well, I'm reading into it a little bit. But I, I imagine that's, that's a lot of what was going on in the king's mind and between him and Nehemiah. So he asks, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And he goes on. And, and a letter, not only to the governors, but also to Asaph, 
the keeper of the king's force, that, I'm, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So he continues with his ask. And when we're reading verses 7 and 8 here, it, it should dawn on us that he had a pretty detailed idea of what he needed and, and what it would take to do what he was going to do. I, I don't know about you, um, I've been in this situation where I have a vision for something. Uh, I, I feel God's called me to do something and then somebody asks, well, how's that going to work? Or what do you need to get that done? And I say, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and, and, you know, that's usually an honest answer. I mean, it's never, never you know, because I, I really know and I don't want to tell them. But sometimes the planning process has not gone forward as much as the praying process has. But see, Nehemiah, now we, we learned that what Nehemiah was doing for those four months was not only praying and fasting, calling on God, weeping and mourning, being broken before Him, but he was thinking about it. <laughs> he was thinking about the situation and he was thinking, God has called me this, I'm praying before Him, I'm calling on Him to do what only He can do, but I need to do something about this. I need a plan for it. Because when God works and God moves and the opportunity arises, I need to be ready to act. I need to be ready to do it. So his praying didn't exclude planning. That's an important thing to remember. He had a plan. And he told him right out, if it pleases the king, let me have letters. Let me, in other words, give me authority. Give me, in, the mil, in military terms, we would say, put it in my orders. <laughs> Write it down. Put it in writing. If you're, if you're trying to get a contract or if you're, if you're getting hired for a job and they're saying, yeah, we want you to do this and do this and we'll give you this and we'll give you that and here are your benefits, I would say, you know, where is it written down? Right? And so he wanted letters. He wanted it written down. So that when he traveled through that region, it would be a long journey, but when he traveled through that region, he could give those to the people in authority there and they would see the king's signature and they'd see what the orders were and they would say, all right, here you go. Pa free passage through here. Uh, make, a, make your way on to Judah. And, and not only that, but he's like, I, I'm going to need some resources too. And I know who's in charge of those resources. I did my homework and I know if... You write me a letter to that person, then he will be able to provide all the resources that I need for the rebuilding that needs to take place. And so he asks. And the king, it says, granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is pretty awesome. I, uh, as I was reading this passage this week, I, I saw that and, 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 I, and I meditated on it and I pondered this little phrase that is really the, whole, the crux of this entire passage. That's why we're talking about the good hand that gives us confidence to wait on God. The good hand that gives us confidence to ask. The good hand, he focuses on God's goodness the fact that, that what God does is his hand would, his hand would represent um, his ability to do something. So the, the hand for the Hebrew mind was, was essentially the, the acting 
out of, of the character of God. And he said that when God acts, when God moves, when God works, it's good. It's a good thing when God works. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, when, when, when uh, Nehemiah was praying his prayer of thanksgiving and remembrance, he said, They are your servants and your people, Israel, God's chosen people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. That was consistent with what he prayed. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Before God, uh, Nehemiah knew that he could come to God with a prayer, with a request, because he knew God's hand was strong. It was able. It was going to do it. It was great. It was mighty. Those are other translations of that idea of a strong hand. And here he goes, I know God is able to do this. I know God is great and He's all-powerful. And maybe sometimes we, we will tend to think that, well, I know that God is great and awesome and mighty, but I don't know if He always wants what's best for me. I don't know if He always wants what's good or if He always does what is good. Sure, He's able to do all of these things. Yes, He can do all that He wants because He created everything. I believe in that. But is He really good? Is he really out for my best interests? Does he really want to do good to me and my life? That was what Nehemiah was faced with. Maybe that's why he was a little bit afraid. Because he knew he was going to have to ask. And he believed that God was great and God was awesome. But he was wondering, is God going to be good to me? Is God going to be good in my circumstances? In the situation of my life? when all of this brokenness is around me? And yes, he was. And he gives credit to God. That reminded me of several passages of Scripture that I think are worth looking at. Um, and if you want to write down these references, I'll share them with you. James 1, 16-17 uh, says this, and I'll, I'll just... I'll turn to it very briefly. You don't have to turn there now. You don't want to unless your devices are faster than my fingers. But James 1, verses 16 to 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Think about the good things in your life. Especially think about the good things in your life that you haven't prayed for. Think about the fact that you're here today. That you have life and breath. That you have clothing to wear. That you have a place to stay. That whether it's an apartment or a hotel or a rental home or a house that you own and paid for or whether it's a truck, you have a place to stay. There are good things in your life. God has given you those good things. And what James is saying is that every good thing is from God. It comes from Him. And we may think, we may wonder, and I, I wondered this too, well, but, but didn't I work for it? Didn't I pay for it? <coughs> You're not alone. Because the people of Israel thought the same thing. Well, didn't we work for it? Didn't we labor? Didn't we put our minds... To the, to, the, to the idea? Didn't we um, use our entrepreneurial skills and our, 
our hard work ethic to accomplish what we accomplished. And Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 to the people, he says this, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is today. You, you may think, well, I bought all these things. I worked for all these things. How did you get that power? How did you get that ability? That's what the idea there in the word power is. How did you get the ability to do what you did? God placed it there. God is behind it. And then we look to Philippians chapter 2. And just a, a couple of verses past the verse of the week that we, we, we read earlier today um, says that, that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now that phrase has given a lot of people some consternation. What does it mean to work out our salvation? But the point that Paul is, is making is that when you are obedient to God, you are working it out. Your salvation is free. It's from God. It's His gift to you. But when you're obedient to Him, you're walking in it. You're living in your salvation. You're working out your salvation when you obey Him with fear and trembling. And verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In other words, you may be, you may be thinking, well, I'm really motivated to obey God. I'm really motivated and I have the will and the energy and I'm, I'm going to go for this. I really want to do this. If it's the right thing to do, if it's a good thing to do, you, you may be wondering, well, isn't that me doing it? And right here, this verse says that it's God who gives you the will. It's God who provides that motivation. And not only to will, to want to do it, to desire to do it, but to do it. To actually get the work done. God is behind it. The good hand of God was behind Nehemiah. The good hand of God is behind any good that is done in our lives. And any good that we, we engage in personally. What if though? What if things would not have worked out for Nehemiah? It's, I'm speculating here, okay? I'm speculating. But what if things weren't, wouldn't have worked out for Nehemiah? What if, what if the passage would have gone along here, chapter 2, and he's asking and he's, he's confident to wait on God, he's confident to ask God for help, or ask, excuse me, ask, ask Artaxerxes for help, and Artaxerxes hear all the, hears all this, and, and, he, and Nehemiah is like, and give me, give me letters and give me timber, and the king refused to answer my request. What if that's what it would have read there? Do you think that we would have seen Nehemiah say, for the good hand of my God was upon me? Okay, I know I'm speculating. And I know it's hard to do. And, and you may be wondering, you may be wondering, can we be justified in that? Could we be, can we be justified in, in claiming that God is good and that His good hand is behind everything even when our requests get denied? I've been wondering that, personally. I've been wondering that. For two years, for, for those of you who don't know, many of you do know, I have been working for the National Guard 
uh, 10 years of active duty. Now I'm working for the National Guard. And my whole point of joining the National Guard, I mean, in my mind, God has his plans too, obviously. But my goal was to become a chaplain. And I was hoping to get a commission a year and a half ago and be working and training so that at this point in, in my time, I'd be ready to do it. Well, it's taken forever. And every time I seem to ask, I get denied. Now, not by the, uh, not the ultimate denial, um, but little things along the way just are not working out. I get setback after setback after setback, and I'm wondering, God, do you really want this to happen? Is this your plan? Is this your purposes for me? Because it's really frustrating. <laughs> it's really frustrating how this is working out. The, uh, the, the, the story of Daniel is a, is a wonderful story of another hero from the Old Testament. And this hero, Daniel, also had three friends. I don't know if you've ever heard this story before. Many people have. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard the story of Rack, Shack, and Benny, or um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, they had real Hebrew names, but as well, but nobody remembers those. Um, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a situation similar to, I think, what this, this pressure of what's going to happen next. A similar situation in which they were wondering, is God good? Does He have our best interest in mind? And the situation for them was that uh, a Babylonian king about 70 plus years prior to, probably more like 100 years or so, prior to the time of Nehemiah, he was the one in charge in that, in that region of the world at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, and he built the statue and he said, everyone needs to bow down to it when they hear the music playing. And uh, the music would be playing all over the world and the people would or all over their kingdom, and they would bow down to the statue. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, we worship the God of Israel. We don't worship that statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't, you're going to get thrown into this furnace, a huge fiery furnace, and you're going to get burned to death. And they said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They believed God was great. They believed that God could deliver them from that situation. But then they said, but you know what? Even if God chooses not to, we're still not going to worship you. We're still not going to do what you said to do, what you're commanding us to do. We're still going to be obedient to God. We're still going to worship Him. Him. Why? It doesn't say it explicitly, but I got to think that they knew in their heart of hearts that God is always, always does what is good and right and perfect. He always does what is good. Good. God is good whether He saves us out of this or not. Whether we go through the fire or not, God is still good. God is still good. 
The good hand of God gives us confidence to wait on God, to ask for help, and finally, we see in the last couple of verses, to actually accept help. It's one thing to ask for it, but it's another thing to put yourself in the position of, of actually receiving that help, accepting that help. Because the very next uh, verses say, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had also sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. We didn't see that explicit in his, in his request, but we see it now that, that he accepted even more help than he made explicit that he had an armed escort with him. But, verse 10, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, there is our first indication of some opposition. There's our first indication of some opposition. But don't you think that whether or not Nehemiah uh, had had received the help from the king, or whether this opposition may have come up, that he believed that the good hand of my God was upon me, in his words. He believed it. He trusted in God. He had confidence in God to go do this regardless of who was opposing him. We're going to see a lot more of these, these two in the next few weeks, and we'll see the kinds of antics and shenanigans that they are trying to pull on Nehemiah and God's people. But I want to ask us this question this morning. Do you believe in the good hand of God? Do you believe that He has His best for you? Have you experienced difficulties and sufferings? Have you experienced problems? And you're wondering, what are you doing, God? One verse that always brings me comfort that reminds me that God is good is Romans 8.28. For we know that in all things God is working for good for those who are called according to His purposes. Called and loved. God is working together things for good in our lives. As he was working things together for good in Nehemiah. We, um, we see this clearly and, and best in the person and work of Jesus. Amen? We see that we, in, in, in the experiences of our lives, in all the broken downness of our lives, we wonder, is God good? And we have to look no further than the cross where God demonstrated His love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was ultimately good, always good, even in the suffering of His own Son, even in the suffering and the agony and the death that He experienced on the cross. God was good. And so when we go through broken times, when we go through experiences of waiting on Him, that we can trust that He's good because we have Jesus. We have Jesus to prove His goodness and we have Jesus to enable us to have that kind of confidence in Him. What are you waiting for? What are you asking for? And are you ready to receive not only from other people 
what they're asking for, but are you ready to receive God's good gift, His perfect gift for you, whatever it might be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for, once again, for this time, for what You have shown us today. I thank You, God, what you have, for what You have spoken to my heart, even in this, this few minutes that we had uh, to see Your Word together. God, I do pray that You will work out Your good in our lives. I pray that You will do things in us uh, that are awesome and amazing, that we want to see Your strong hand, God, but we also need to remember that Your hand is good, that You do love us and care for us, that You desire us not only to, uh, God, to, to have everything go splendidly, but that even your, your, your true purpose for us to, to be restored to you, God, means that uh, we may have to go through some experiences that, um, that are difficult, that are challenging, um, that, may, that may cause us to, at times, falter. Lord, send us Jesus to, to not only remind us that you are good, but God, to, to work in us, to will and to work for your good pleasure, to, to give us the comfort that we need from you, to give us assurance, um, to give us the confidence that Jesus had in his heavenly Father when he saw, when he, when he told... <laughs> when he told the, the disciples, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. When he faced the, the worst separation from you that anyone has ever felt, that when he faced the ultimate experience of brokenness, and he said, your will be done. Your will be done. God, may we have that spirit today. We love you. We give you all the praise, all the glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Part of